you know, knives are sharp, they're dangerous. The question is, how do you use them? And so we don't make knives safe by dulling them. We don't make men safe by dulling them either. What we do is we sharpen them and then we train them for a particular task, a particular purpose. Gentlemen, welcome to episode 079 of the Becoming Men podcast. This episode is brought to you by thebecomingmen.com. I'm your host, Ray De La Nuez, and this is the podcast for good men who want to live epic lives, men who are on their masculine journey, men who are trying to crush it in life. Listen, if you are looking at yourself in the mirror today and there is something about you that wants to change, then this podcast is for you. Every week I show up with legendary guests who help me bring you some of the best content out there on masculinity and biblical masculinity at that. And if this is the first time that you're joining us, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss another life changing episode. Also, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Ray De La Nuez. All of those links are going to be down below. My guest this week, guys, is Eric Khan. He's the host of not one, but two podcasts. The first is called Hard Men and the second Wilderness Warrior. Eric has a talent for discussing what it means to show up with biblical masculinity in a world of softness. And today we'll actually be talking about what it takes and what it means to be a hard man. Gentlemen, my guest, Eric Kahn. I finally got you on the podcast, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Six months in the work, and I only wanted to ask you this one question. I'll let you go. I promise, man. If you could could go back, talk to yourself a decade ago, uh, you got one minute to give yourself like the best advice that's going to set you up for the next decade. What would you say? Man, that is such a good question. I I think a big part of it for me would be the patience of knowing like you're going to work hard today. You're going to work hard tomorrow. You're going to work hard for a hundred days and really just understanding that the fruit that you're going to see is like three to five years away. So as a young man, you know, I remember just being so impatient. Like I want, I want to be in the middle to top of my career right away. I'm five years in. I want to get there. I want to see the fruit of, you know, I had kids early in my early twenties, which you say like, man, I want to enjoy when they're teenagers. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff, it really just takes the plotting, the faithfulness, the lunch pail mentality on a daily basis so that you can see that fruit long term. And, you yeah. know, now I'm 36 now and I look back and it's like the things I was doing at 25, being faithful, being disciplined, being self-controlled, investing in my marriage, all those things like they're, the fruit is now, you know, it's 10 years, awesome. three to five, 10 years down the road. So I think that's a big part of it. Be patient. The other thing I'd say to myself is just, you know, I was married early. Uh, Everybody told me that was a stupid idea. Had kids early. Man, one of the best decisions I ever made. It it grew me up. Uh, You know, we we talk a lot in my show about masculinity. Well, you get that by bearing the weight of responsibility. Yeah. And what better way than than family and kids? So yeah, I would uh, I would say good job on that and be patient. Yeah, no kidding. I, I I heard you actually on one of your episodes a while ago talking about how you know our society kind of tells you like wait to get married, like get established first, like hold on, don't rush into it. And you're like, no man, if you have two people who are willing to do this, like why is anybody trying to stop that? Like go for it. That is only going to do you good. You still agree with yeah. that? By the way. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Good. And, and I would say, look, I mean, you know, even in the Christian church, that world, uh, we were told the same thing, you know, put your career first, put your, you know, college first. Um, we were able to fortunately do all those things. My wife and I both graduated from, from college. Yeah. I went on to go to seminary. 
uh, you know, be established in careers. But really through that, we, we still put family first. Um, it's yeah. been a priority. And um, I, th- I think that's a problem for a lot of people. You get to about 36, my age, especially thinking about like women who, who didn't invest or men who didn't invest in family. And for a lot of them, they're looking back and they're saying, well, now it's kind of too late, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm kind of beyond my, my time for having kids. So again, just, you know, I, I'd say it was one of the best decisions. Make it early, invest in that early. You got plenty of time for career, yeah. um, you know, and, and really honestly on your deathbed, you're going to want the love of your kids. You're going to want your name, your story to live on through them. The, the focus is not going to be on, Hey man, look what I did with my career. It's over. They're going to hire somebody else. You yeah. know, that's the yeah. bottom line. You know, as you were saying, you know, having the patience or, of knowing that the fruit is coming, I was having this picture of uh, Chinese bamboo. Have you ever heard of oh, it? Yeah. How that stuff yep. grows? Like you plant this thing and year one, if you're anxiously sitting there hovering over this thing, waiting for it to show root, you'll be disappointed. Year two, just as disappointed. Year three, you're like, oh, surely. Nope. Disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Not until after the fourth year will you actually see that thing start sprouting anything above ground because that entire time it was actually taking root. It was actually establishing a foundation for four years before it would actually shoot up and be one of the tallest and strongest bamboos in the world. And I mean, gosh, what a perfect image of our faith, right? Yeah, it's perfect. And, and I mean, you see that all across the fruit tree spectrum. And look, I think God put those things in in the world so that we would look at them and we'd be reminded. Um, I, I remember early on in my career uh, as a pastor, somebody told me when you first go to a church, you know, plant a cherry tree. And mm-hmm. I said, well, why would you plant a cherry tree? And they said, because you're not going to see fruit for seven years. And every wow. time you look at that tree, you should think about what it's like to invest in people's lives. Yeah. So that applies not only to the pastor, but listen, like if you're coaching men um, in your workplace, you start a new business, new startups, everybody thinks there's overnight successes. And I would say that's a myth. It's a yeah. lie. Big time. You know, that stuff is years in the making for yeah. most people. Yeah. Well, unless you're the Island boys. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure they had some, uh, they had some times that weren't so successful before, but we just didn't <laughs> see that, but that, that might be the exception. Yeah, it, it definitely is, man. I, I don't want to, uh, if you guys don't have that in your head, I would not want to put it in your head Just stay away from any titles that say Island boy. If it you already don't, don't know go about there. it, just don't, don't do it. Uh, but man, okay, good. I think that's solid advice, man. But just saying, Hey, hold on. You'll see the fruit cling to your wife. She's good. It'll be a gr- your marriage will be a great magnifier of all of the things that you, that you need to work on inside of you. Uh, now I personally, I just want to know, man, were you like thrown into the, into the um, steps of your marriage, like the front steps of this new life without any guidance from before? Did you go at this alone? Uh, did, what was that like? Yeah, I think going into marriage, uh, I was incredibly immature. If you can imagine an 18 year old being immature. Um, Yeah, it's crazy. Um, You know, I meet 18 year olds today and I think I can't believe I got married at that age. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it really was one of those things. I think that the problem is, you know, for all of us, we're selfish innately. Um, That's Mm -hmm. sort of like the natural bend. And then you come into a marriage and you're like, okay, I have to communicate. I, as a man, I have to lead this woman. Well, Mm -hmm. um, all those things, uh, we were fortunate in the first year, especially I had some older men around me and they were sort of, you know, giving me the like, Hey, calm down, man. Um, counseling, coaching, a lot of really helpful things. Um, I was a very spirited, passionate 
young guy. And so I just, you know, you, you have one conflict and, you know, I could tend to be high and low and stuff and, oh my gosh, yeah. what's going on. And yeah. so I think it was just good to have older, wiser men who could be like, dude, this is, this is how it goes. Like you're going to have difficulty and, you know, just that steadying presence. Uh, I think in my life that definitely helped out. I would say probably, probably two years into marriage, like that, that really that second year, we really worked on marriage. Uh, we went through just basically some people in our church went through counseling with them. Yeah. Um, really working on personal discipline, you know, controlling my tongue, controlling my anger, um, not saying, you know, believe it or not, don't say everything that you're thinking is a really helpful piece of advice. Yeah. Um, we, we, one of the most valuable lessons that I learned was really about expectations, right? If you have, this is a pastor told us this, and I've always clung to it, but he said, if you have expectations that are unaired, what you have is Mm -hmm. premeditated resentments. Ooh, that's good. Right. So like if you and your wife, you know, it's a picture you're going out to dinner and you each have expectations, but you don't tell the other person. And then when those expectations don't get met, you know, you sulk, you get angry, you have bitter words, all this stuff can be small things, can be big things. So really just learning the communication pieces of, hey, here are my expectations. Here's what I want. Um, And then working through ways to meet those with each other. Yeah. Again, those are just maturity pieces that, uh, you know, as a young person, you're like, well, I want what I want and everybody should just give it to me. Yeah. And then uh, marriage teaches you that's not exactly the case. Mm. Huh. Unfortunately, it is not. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not another human case. in the equation. And man, the uh, it just so happens that the definition of war is a conflict between two opposing wills. Uh, so you can you can see how <laughs> war breaks out even in your dining room. Yeah, that's exactly dishes. right. <laughs> so, that's exactly right. Yeah, but okay. So going back to your advice that you would give to yourself. So like there was good fruit being planted in those first two years of your marriage, you know, where you guys are now seeing the benefits of that. Now you're reaping uh, what you sowed then now. And I'm sure you are, pretty, yeah. you are thankful you did it. And I think maybe that's something that is really missed with, with, with a lot of guys who say, Hey, it's not working out. Uh, this thing has like a 364 day return policy because I can easily <laughs> annul this marriage. And I mean, yeah. I just spoke to a young woman, no kidding. I sat her in my office. I said, Hey, you've been married for 114 days and you're telling me that this is irreconcilable, right? Like you are done. She's like, yep, I'm, I'm done. We're done. No, we're, we're getting annulled. Right. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I've counseled people in the same situation. Um, I would say, uh, you know, so this is looking back at maybe 10 years of counseling experience, uh, all different situations. I would say probably like 80 to 90% of the time, the things that are car- called irreconcilable are just, your average normal yeah. run of the mill conflict and people just don't have the basic skills mm-hmm. to deal with those issues. Now, sometimes you, you really do. I've dealt with situations where it's spousal abuse, um, violence, alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. And that, that's yeah. a little bit different situation. I mean, you have to deal with it differently as well. But, but I think for most people, that's generally not the case. It's um, you know, I just don't like him anymore. He doesn't like me. Um, really, I would say most of it's not dealing well with conflict. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I try to t- tell people, and this is one reason in counseling, you know, any kind of coaching relationship, I try to get people to commit to like 12 weeks. Mm, and and the good. reason is, is because like, you're not going to go to one session, you know, imagine going to the gym and working out one time and being like, I'm not ripped. What happened? What did I do wrong? Yeah. What did I do wrong? Um, 
you know, you really have to invest over the long term. And then you got to really get through what other people have called the, the plateau of latent returns, right? Like mm. you have a plateau where you're going to work and work and work and work and work and nothing's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it's like, you'll just hit this, this barrier, this plateau where you just start seeing all these returns. I, I remember saying early on in my marriage to a counselor, I remember saying to him, does this ever get easier? Like, will I, will I ever like do the right thing and it'll come natural? Like, because at that moment, I was having to memorize scripture about controlling my tongue, about the things that I said. And it was like, every time I had to control my tongue, it was like walking over broken glass. (laughs) I was like, why is this so hard? I just want to say it, right? I just want to say it, but I can't. And it was painful. And and again, just needing the reassurance of like, be patient, stick to it. Yeah. Long-term it's going to pay off. Now, uh, just so people can, I guess, see the return. I'm 16 years into my marriage and man, I feel so fortunate because I look around and people are like, you, you know, the, the old tired married couples and they're like, basically they hate each other and they talk yeah. about that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I look at my wife and, and we have this conversation all the time and I said, babe, I love you. Yeah. I'm grateful to be married. It's a tremendous blessing in my life. We genuinely have a good relationship. Um, it's not filled with fighting and bickering and nastiness. There's not like, you know, just untold amounts of resentment in our marriage that you see so often. Again, I think it goes back to just learning the basics of relational conflict resolution early on. Yeah. Wow. That, that is not a common thing right? to be able to say like, no. actually even better. Would you say that you like your wife? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so some people say like, oh, yeah, I love them. Right. Like I, I will choose to love them. Like, no, I actually <laughs> yeah. like my wife. I like yeah. her as a friend. I like oh, her yeah. around me. I enjoy her. Oh and yeah. I, I'm like, how do people not sleep in this? There's still people sleeping in different rooms, right? Like you'd rather sleep yeah. on a chair in another room <laughs> away from your wife. Why? Why? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I always ask people in those situations, like, are you enjoying this? Yeah. And, and a lot of it I think is there's kind of two things. Number one, people don't know what to do. They don't know how to mm-hmm. make it better. I remember mm-hmm. being in that situation. I genuinely, it wasn't because I was just saying like, Hey, you know, I'd like to be miserable in my marriage. Uh, early on, it, it really was because I lacked the skills and the wisdom and the practical ability to actually go do these things. Like I didn't right. know what to do. So, so you do need some guidance. There are also people though, who, I mean, they just don't want to do the hard work, right? You know, right. it's, it's just easier to be the kind of person that enjoys that first, you know, six months of a relationship, things get hard. I, I leave right. and you just keep doing that on repeat. Man, this is, we are going way, way <laughs> off of where I thought we would go, but I love this. And I think the audience yeah. does too, man. And okay. So I'm going to tie in your podcast yeah. name, shout out um, into this. So like hard men, right? Yep. Why'd you come up with that name? Yeah. Great question. Um, it was a couple things, but mainly I was reading a book, um, which is called the grace of shame. Uh, Tim Bailey and Joseph Bailey, father, son, um, uh, guys that I had met, read their book. Um, and in the book, they're talking about Matthew chapter 11. And one of the things that struck me was it, Jesus says about John the Baptist, he was not malikos, the Greek word. He was not soft. Um, and, and he's comparing it in the passage to people who live in luxury, right? People who have an easy life. And, but, but, you know, it doesn't use the word hard in that passage, but I think 
my, I guess, extrapolation of it was, well, if he's not soft, what is he? Yeah. And so that's really where I came up with this idea of hard masculinity. And and it's really tied to John, you know, uh, John's living in the wilderness. He's enduring hardship, but he's also speaking hard words. He's the kind of guy that's willing to speak the truth when it's unpopular. Um, You know, he, he, he doesn't play to the crowd. Obviously later in the story of the gospel of Matthew, he loses his head because he's, he's calling Herod to repent over the sexual immorality in his life. And so really I, I started to look at this, the word Malikos means effeminate, um, we, you know, modern parlance, we'd say gay. Um, and, and it's not necessarily a person living in that lifestyle. It, it's just like when we, we look at a dude and we say, well, that's kind of gay. That's really what we're talking about. Like he's not a yeah. man, he's not manly, he's not masculine. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that, that really was kind of the beginning, uh, of where that idea came from. Yeah. I love that. So, okay. Perfect tie in. Right. So here you are trying to be a hard man, right? Yeah. To, to embody what it means to be a biblical man. Yeah. And you are presented sometimes with some of the most challenging things, which is a, a woman in front of you who has her own will, her own thoughts, uh, her own <laughs> belief systems and her own junk. Yeah. Right. And you're just trying to do this together and represent God well in it. But man, you get into a fight on a Friday It lasts all through Saturday. And then you got to show up on Sunday and somebody's going to ask you, how you guys doing? You're going to be like, oh yeah, we're well, everything's well. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. This just did. The whole Christian church is doing well. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, big time. And and I think one of the things I learned early on, especially when you have like, you know, have some sort of size platform, right. Where people like look up to you in some way or the other. So for me, it was, you know, blogging, writing, podcasting, et cetera. You go to conferences, whatever you see people in the airport and people are like, oh, you're the hard men guy. And, you know, it's cool, but it's also one of the things I realized early on was like, I can either be a just total hypocrite and I can just pretend like I'm that perfect thing that they think you are. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I can own the failures. And so what I've tried to do is tell people, look, I'm... I'm a, I'm really a, a guy who struggles with being soft, who has to push himself toward hardness because I know that's what God's called me to do. Mm. And I think that is more encouraging for people to see. Um, you know, the other day, you know, this is a perfect example of it. Like I totally lost my cool. Um, I was at the gun range, like my scope fell off. Like I, basically I'd stripped out the screws from my scope bases and I was, I was just pissed Yeah, and I kind of lost it. And I said some things I shouldn't. And we got in the car and we drove back. I'm a 14 year old son with me. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wow, what a great example of hard masculinity and being a godly man. I'm sure this is a great example. And in that moment, I, I just looked at him. And I said, you know what? I need to, I need to apologize and I need to repent because what I did was wrong and it was sinful. And mm-hmm. for a lot of guys, like you think that that is going to make you nothing in your son's eyes, but that's what makes him believe you're not a hypocrite, right? It's not that we don't have failures, right? It's that we have to own them. We have to take that extreme ownership and we have to say, look, what I did was wrong. I need to fix it. That's part of the masculine journey. It's not, it's not being perfect because people are going to see through that. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Right. And you, your kids, your family, especially, they know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think staying authentic uh, is is one of the most challenging things, but your kids will invite you into greater authenticity if you choose to accept that invitation. I remember one time uh, mm-hmm. I was leaving Walmart and I had my son in the back seat. And there was a long line that we were waiting to just kind of merge in so we can get out of the parking lot. And somebody decided to go all the way around 
and cut in front of me and get in. And I gave him a good hunk and you know, whatever drove away. And my son's just like, dad, why did you just honk at him? I'm like, son, it's, it's okay. It was a very low stakes situation. There's <laughs> a four yeah. year old in the back, but dad, you should not have honked at him. How do you think you made him feel? And I'm like, oh my gosh, son, I think, you know, it's okay. And I like wave that off until we get home. Yeah. And he tells my wife, dad honked at us at somebody, you know, and we, we kind of have like, this is a, hey, I'm from New Jersey. So honking oh, is yeah. like a habit I had to get away from. It's like right? breathing. I, I had to repent of honking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I, I've adopted a new style of, you know, passive aggressiveness in the car. Uh, no, just kidding. But, and then he goes and we go see some friends and tells them, yeah, my daddy honked at somebody today. I'm like, son, you don't have to tell these oh, people. <laughs> Why are you like my conscience always reminding me of these things, child? Yeah. Yeah. But man, it's the invitation into that to, oh, to yeah. then come in and be like, yeah, you're right. I should not have done that. I did just lose my, my cool for a second because I felt wronged. Um, and then you make it a teaching moment to try to make yourself feel better. Uh, and you see, son, so you should not do what I just did. <laughs> Oh yeah. And I mean, even for me, you know, it was, it was humble pie. I think like right before I lost my cool, I was telling my son like, yeah, you know, men, you know, a man without self-control is like a city without walls, son. And we, mm. you know, we need to work on self-control. And then that happened. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think part of it is like your, your son's going to deal with those same things too. Yeah. And what they really need to see is that you're, you're wrestling with them. You're working to improve yourself. Um, you're not blame shifting, you're not, you know, blaming the situation, you take ownership and, and again, you work on it. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So let's, let's expand on those a little bit more. If we could get some, some fundamentals of what it means to be a hard man, uh, maybe some of the things that people that you've spoken to, uh, things that you've blogged and wrote about, uh, talked about on your podcast, uh, what comes to mind? Yeah. A lot of the things that, uh, I think where it was, I guess, mildly, popular or seem to get a pretty big response. Some of the things I've written about, um, hard, hard masculinity is, you know, it includes violence and danger. Mm. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, um, particularly in the church world was we've become increasingly uncomfortable with the language of violence, danger, masculinity entailing any of this. But I mean, like historically you look at it and anybody would said, yeah, I mean, vir, V-I-R in Latin is the word for courage. It's also the root word for man. So like in his wow. core, man is made to be this courageous warrior, this, you know, person, obviously warrior, you go to war. Um, in, in maybe any century prior to, I mean, even in the 20th century, at the end of it, like everybody knows, like we need men to protect. Um, they go to war, they fight, we have values. There's people in the world that don't like us. They would kill us. They'd fly planes into buildings to kill us. Yeah. Um, so, so we need to have strong masculine men. And I think more so in our current context, like I think feminism's on the rise. And so this notion of being like violent, dangerous, um, it's really looked down upon. Like men should be nice. Yeah. Um, so that's really one thing that I've tried to, to, to combat and I think part of it too is, you know, I, I use the analogy of a knife. Uh, you know, knives are sharp. They're dangerous. The question is, how do you use them? Mm. And so we don't make knives safe by dulling them. And we don't make men safe by dulling them either. What we do is we sharpen them and then we train them for a particular task, a particular purpose. Um, yeah. So really looking at masculinity from that angle of, I'm not trying to make you weak, docile, neutered, domesticated, whatever. 
trying to train you for a purpose so that your danger, your capacity for danger is under complete control. Do you dream of being known as a resilient and confident Christian man? Maybe you've even wished that you would finally become more faithful and disciplined, but after trying so damn hard, you still don't see any lasting change. So you feel discouraged and ashamed. And I get that because that was me more than eight years ago. But I can tell you right now that one of the things that's going to help you become the man that God created you to be is by getting a life coach, somebody who's going to be in your corner and walking with you along the way. And because I understand the transformative power of a virtual life coach, I want to offer you a free session right now on me. All you have to do is head over to thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. Again, that's thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. We see a problem. Everybody thinks thinks in first order effects, right? We yeah. see an issue. Uh, it, it's guns. People are shooting guns. Okay, take take everybody's guns away. Like that. That has to be the easiest thing. Like, but how much has history shown us that if you focus only on the first order of effects, you never get to the root issue that's always that's actually going to heal and 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 fix the problem, right? If you look at yeah. second, third, fourth. The fact that you don't have to take away guns, but maybe you need to look at the people who are committing that and what it is that you need to be dealing in that arena or or working on in that arena to fix the actual problem. Man, that's that's so good. Yeah, really huge. And I I think, um, you know, a good example of that is, you know, particularly inner city communities. You can Mm -hmm. look at those communities. You can say, oh, there's a lot of gun violence. And a lot of people say, well, we just, you know, we need to take away the guns. Yeah. Chicago is a good example. It's a prime example of what happens. You have all these gun laws, Washington, DC, the same thing. Guess what? Gun violence doesn't go away. I think one of the things that's ignored though, is those communities are predominantly fatherless communities. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is the real issue is fatherlessness. Uh, everybody's seen the data, you know, men who have no fathers, the incarceration rates, right. Or astronomical among those men. So again, yeah, you you have to look at the long-term, where did these issues come from? And then I also think with something like what I've called in our culture, that this culture of safetyism, right. Mm -hmm. It started with the seatbelt and it's gone to like, you know, we can't have peanuts around our kids because peanuts are the devil. And studies have actually shown this. It's kind of interesting. You know, this whole preschool peanut allergy thing. um, It started in like the early nineties and they were like, we need to remove peanuts to protect our kids from, you know, some might have peanut allergies. Yeah. Well, well, guess what they found over the years, over two decades, peanut allergies increased. Yeah. And scientists have, you know, they've come out and they've said, listen, the reason they've increased is because we didn't expose them, our kids to, to peanuts. peanuts. Exactly. And so now they all have allergies. Exactly. So it, it's one of those instances where, you know, good intentions maybe, but the safetyism type steps that you took yeah. actually made the problem worse. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's easy thinking. And we run into this in the Marine Corps so much because, okay, I'm going to do something that is very unsafe. It's inherent to my job. Whenever I go out, uh, outside of the wire and I'm going to execute whatever mission against the enemy that is going to happen. But attached to every mission, every order is an attempt to try to reduce, reduce risk. I didn't say like end all risk, because if you do that, then you would just pack up and leave. (laughs) And even then, even then you can't, right? But in order to reduce it, it, it's just accepting an amount of risk you know, at a point where it's like, it's going to be beneficial. The, the ends are going to be beneficial, right? And, yeah. so, and so what we end up doing, like we have a residual uh, risk factor. And a lot of the times that risk factor is like, yes, death, we reduced it from being imminent to like, death is like, you know, sort of imminent. 
But like, it's not right. like we're going to cower away. We are going to be courageous and we're going to step forward because that is the thing that we are called to do. But easy thinking says, well, instead of going over the mountain, which is the shortest route, uh, but it also provides the greatest risk, we're just going to go around it. It might take nine days longer, but it'll be safer. But man, God yeah. sometimes wants to bring you right to the top of that mountain so you can plant that flag and say, this yeah. is this is my land. Yeah. And you, you know, you apply that then to masculinity and all the efforts to make men tame. What have they done? You know, uh, I think they've really destroyed masculinity. They destroyed parts of culture. So like, you know, you take a man who has this just like potent sexuality inherently in his bones and his hormones. He has a potent sexuality. You ever met a teenage boy, you ever been one, you understand what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. We can either take that and we can direct it at something like marriage and say, yeah, go love the wife of your youth, go make babies, go be fruitful, go multiply, fulfill the command that God gave you. Or we can say, yeah, man, just remain single, pursue a career. And yeah, I hope you don't struggle with porn. I mean, you're you're basically just asking for a disaster culturally and societally when you do that. Right. Wow. Such a good point, man. Okay. So... I love that violence and danger and anything else fundamentals of uh, just being of, of hardcore masculinity, hard masculinity. Yeah. I, I think fundamentally that kind of the, the point that we've, you know, I've talked less about, but I would say is probably the central most important thing is um, you know, guys having a relationship with Christ being guys who are rooted in, in a pious life, um, not piety in the sense of go be alone with Jesus on the mountain though. That is certainly part of it, but Piety in the sense of, look, you know, First Timothy 5, Paul talks about what is piety. And he says, piety is about caring for your family. It's about providing for your family. Whoever does not take care of their family is worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. A really great picture of this is in the Aeneid of what piety is. Aeneas is leaving Troy. Troy's been destroyed and he's got his father on his back and he's holding his son's hand. I mean, what a picture of your debt to the generations, both to God Mm -hmm. and to the people around you. Like this is the kind of piety that men ought to be after. Not like this romantic, like me and my relationship with Jesus slash my girlfriend could be about the same thing. Um, But it's again, this picture of piety that's masculine, it's heroic. I think trying to recover that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I've seen in church is like, if you talk about piety today, we tend to talk about it in the church and in language of like emotions. Sure. So like if you have a men's Bible study, it's basically like bacon and feelings. And I don't know about you, but when I'm with men, they're not like, Hey dude, let's bro. Let's talk about our feelings. Yeah. Yeah. That's not men are like, let's go do something. Let's go kill something. Let's go work on a project together. And we'll have some side conversations along the way that are pretty meaningful. So I think rooting, and, and finding a piety for men that's both biblical, but allows for their masculine nature to thrive. That's been a big part of, of really what I've tried to emphasize too. Wow. <laughs> I just spoke to uh, the author of why men hate going to church. Oh, really? And uh, man, he blew me away with some of the things that you just take for, I mean, you just take them as it is because you just yeah. show up to church and like, it is what it is. But he's like, no, if you look at our church, it is perfectly designed mostly by women. It's, it's, it's not like with bad intent designed with, uh, with all of these hangings all over the, the church and the colors and the schemes, it's got to, you know, yeah. it really appeal to women more. And, and, yeah. and the sermons are more about this love. And, and, and then the, the, 
uh, seven eleven songs. It's like you repeat the same seven yeah. words eleven times or something like yeah. that. And and even just the approach that we take towards worship about, like you said, I've actually listened to songs that I thought, oh wow, that's a really cool love song. Is that a Christian song? Like, w- w- are we talking about yeah. that or somebody's girlfriend here? Like, I, I actually did yeah. not know. Um, it's hard to tell. And it's not to say, and this is this is the weird thing that I'm trying to balance within myself. It's hard to say that, okay, hey, a guy should not adore the Lord in that way. No, like we should. My heart Absolutely. wants to leap towards Jesus, right? When I'm in the presence. But we don't jive the same with the language of like Jesus as my girlfriend, you know? We, we just don't. And that's why songs like that are more of like an anthem of me sticking, up, yeah. you know, my, my flag down and saying, this is, this is how I fight my battle. Like, Lord, this I'm doing, I'm, I'm charging for you. You know, I, I don't know. It appeals to men more. What do you think? Yeah. I think a huge part of it, a really good book to read on this is Leon Podol's, uh, the book is called the church impotent. And he mm. kind of traces like what happened to the church over the centuries. Wow. So if you look at the Western church, it's predominantly female population. Right. Um, and then the messaging has, has changed a lot of exactly. it. He says in the early centuries of the church, when uh, the nunneries, uh, you know, first you had monks, but then, then women were included in the monasteries. So that yeah. uh, the nuns um, really a, a theological trend arose, which was called bridal mysticism. So these women were oh. like young women longing for a husband. And so they would write, and it, we still have it. There's a literature where they're like, basically writing about Jesus, like he's their lover because they were all told like, Hey, don't go get a husband. Like Jesus will be your husband. And so a lot of that, I think infiltrated the church, a lot of that language, of course, you know, as you have predominantly female congregations, in some cases, 70 to 80% of the church is female. You're going to have messages that are tailored toward those women. And I, I think that just exacerbates the problem what I would always go back to is, look, we, we need to think about people like David. David was a king, right? David had the dragon energy, we might say today. David, I mean, he was a warrior. Yeah. Right? Saul slew his thousands. David slew his ten thousands. Yeah. I mean, this was not a nice guy. This is, you know, in, in, in especially for Israel, this would have been the prototypical king. And think about this. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. Like David is a signpost, this warrior king pointing to Jesus. And now Jesus is the one he's been crucified, but he's reigning on his throne as the greater king than David. Yeah. And that's supposed to be the picture of masculinity in the church. And then you go look at the church and you're like, yeah, but that's not what we see. Right. That what we see mostly is an environment again, that's about, emotionalism, heart religion, uh, me and Jesus, you know, out on the lake in a rowboat singing love songs to each other. Again, most men don't want anything to do with that. Men want a mission and they want to fight and they want meaningful work. Yeah. That's what men are looking for. Yeah. And and actually that's what the the author of, you know, why uh, men hate going to church said, like, if you can bring men and tie them into the mission of the church, your church is going to win just because they're going to feel like there's a purpose for me being here. I'm showing up here and and I'm going to affect it in this way. But the more that men are just invited to just sit and, and watch and stand up Emote. and sit down and sit down. Exactly. And, and then leave, like you're going to decrease the population of men in the church. And I think one of the things, and really the reason why I wanted to have you on and we didn't even get to this, but one of the things that is missed right now that, I, that I'm seeing is 
we are giving away the patriarchal call um, upon the church right, for leadership to a more willing, comforting, able uh, body of women. And yeah. men are kind of just like, yeah, they could take care of it. Like I'm finding a purpose or a mission somewhere else. What do you, what, what are your thoughts on that, man? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that um, if men come to church and they find, you know, effeminate pastors, which is something I've written about too, mm. a, a lot of the clergy is Protestant, Catholic, doesn't really matter. A lot of the clergy is, you know, soft, they're effeminate. Um, so men come to church, they find that, and then they find a population that is dominated by women. Traditionally, what's happened is men have said, look, I'm just going to go crush in the business world. Um, I'm going to go focus my efforts somewhere else because this is clearly not my environment. Mm. Um, if you feel like you come to church and you have to turn in your man card when you do it, most guys are just going to opt out. And yeah. so I think sadly, what we find in a lot of churches is the women are really involved, particularly with children. They're involved in children's ministries. It's kind of the women who's like dragging her husband and her sons to church. Um, it never really works out, right? Yeah. You have rebellious kids, rebellious husbands. So, I think a big part of this is if you can engage the men, right? If it, like you were talking about, if you engage the men in the mission, the work, the fight, um, go back to Ephesians five and six, like Paul says, this is epic spiritual warfare. And you speak like that again in the church. I think that you're going to engage the men. And if you win the men, you'll win the families. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a different element. Like if you get a dad who's leading well in his home and he's leading the charge and the, and the wife and the kids are coming with him, that is just a force of nature. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, mom dragging dad to church is not, we all know it's not, it's, you know, that's, that's pretty impotent. Yeah. Um, so again, like just getting men engaged in that um, it, it's a hard thing in today's culture, um, particularly because I think a lot of the, the pastors don't understand the problem. They don't want to, they don't want to admit the problem. I've pointed to it a lot. Um, a lot of people get it. But I think particularly among the pastors, a lot of them are like, they're offended by that. Sure. You know, yeah, I, I can see why I, I, I'm kind of speaking for some women here. I'm definitely speaking uh, for my wife. I think it would be really hard for a woman to turn over, to relinquish the uh, spiritual authority in her household that she's probably established, you know, with the children um, over to a husband who they see is flawed. Um, whose relationship with God is not deep, who's very just kind of detached. Um, but I think the call, man, the biblical call upon men to step up and step in to the arena, right. And to become those warriors, the violent and dangerous warrior that, that are not soft, but absolutely hard. I think men who, who embrace that call and actually carry that the flame on are going to find a, a spouse who is willing and, and desires to submit but I think we start backwards. We look at the scripture and we're like, woman, yeah. the scripture says submit, but you're not submitting. I'm not even going to try anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you, when you get in any relationship, when you get to the point where you're pointing to the passages that the other person is supposed to obey and you're kind of like rubbing their nose in it, yeah. you've man or woman, like you've kind of already failed yeah. at that point. Yeah. You know, that, that's the reality of the situation. I always try to remind guys, especially though, like, listen, man, authority flows to those who take responsibility. So that's where you start. The glad assumption of responsibility, start taking responsibility where you can. And then over time, you'll generally see that her level of respect for you is, is growing. That's good. I think even better yet, obviously, as you mentioned, like if you can enter a relationship with that way in the, in the first place, um, it's, it's even better. 
Right. Um, the, the amazing thing is like, oh, I talk a lot about patriarchy, a biblical patriarchy, not like a secular pa- patriarchy, but described in scripture. And one of the amazing things is I've looked at it. People are always like, oh, patriarchy. It's all about the men. I was like, man, you should see the women. They are the mothers of Sparta. You know, yes. they're the ones who are like, do you need me to go fight that fight for you? Or are you going to be the man? I mean, <laughs> it, it is a force of nature, right? To yeah. have a fierce woman. Yeah. I mean, I love that. My wife will do that for me all the time. If I'm kind of shirking back from a conflict my, in a sort of like playful chiding way, my wife will say, do I need to go handle that? Mm-hmm. And you immediately mm-hmm. are like, you better play the man, son. You better do it right now. You better come correct and go do it. Like be a man. It's good to have women who are encouraging you to do that. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> the, there's a lot of power in those uh, types of types of words from a woman. Um, I, I know my wife many times she'll hear something, go check on the kids or what was that noise in the house? And I'm like, babe, it was nothing. And then <laughs> she'll get up. It's like, oh, all right, I'll be the protector of this house. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. Woman, it hurts. <laughs> get back to bed. I got this. And like, no, no, it's nothing. I was just about to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, awesome. Power. We are easily influenced by, uh, by that type of pressure, dude. And, and oh, that's actually, I, I would love to uh, talk about that today, but I just felt like the conversation uh, went exactly where it needed to go to. So listener right now, I hope you got exactly what you wanted. And Eric, I mean, I guess I'll have to call you out on air um, that I'll have, I'll have to have you on man to, to talk about biblical patriarchy and, and what exactly that means. Uh, because like I told you before we started recording, man, I, it, it doesn't, go well with my current construct, but I'll tell you that I have to confess, maybe my current construct isn't as biblical as I thought it was. And I think I have been convicted by your thoughts. And so guys, actually, if you're listening to this right now, you're welcome. Head over to um, Eric's podcast, Hard Men, and listen to that uh, because you will grow and you will get rocked. And he does not shy away from any type of conversation, any type of topic. Um, (laughs) Man, where else would you want to send these guys? Yeah, you can check out uh, probably the one of the better places, ericcon.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. You can find the podcast there. Of course, you can go to iTunes, Spotify, uh, wherever people get their podcasts. I'm on there as well, too. 